I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you were to pop into my office right now or any time really and look at my desk in the surrounding area, you would uh, see many stacks of books, papers, folders, envelopes, and post-it notes. Because as usual, I have a number of ongoing projects, many of which are incomplete and will, let's be honest, remain incomplete for a long time. Because I'm not the type to do just one thing at a time. Like when I eat my dinner, I do a little bit of chicken, Brussels sprouts, chicken, Brussels sprouts, rice. You know, I go back and forth like that. It's the same way with books for me. I have a little bit of uh, what you might call a book problem. Um, so at any given time, I'm reading about a dozen different books. Some of you share in this addiction with me. Um, and every once in a while, I eventually finish one. All that to say, I am certain that on the day I die, I will have left many things uncompleted. Our readings today, on the other hand have a lot to say about completion, about things coming to completion, about things promised to be completed. And what these readings show us, what they are saying to us, is that the God of the Bible is a God who finishes his projects, which is very good news for us, as we will see. So let's dive right in. Uh, First, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to follow along in your bulletin, Luke chapter 3 Now, um, Luke is about to tell us of of John the Baptist, a figure we're going to discuss a little bit today and then some more next week because he's worthy of our attention. But if you look at the beginning of the gospel reading, there's just a list of names and who did what at the time that John came on the scene. Now, when most of us are reading the Bible, uh, we just let our eyes quickly pass over these seemingly mundane details, right? We're like, name, 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 boring. And then Jesus began to teach. Ah, here's the good stuff. But... Biblical authors don't ever put stuff in just for the sake of being detail-oriented. If you look at the list of names, what you see is that each of these political or religious authorities are persons who will end up opposing the purposes of God in the story of the gospel. For example, Pontius Pilate is listed. What does Pontius Pilate do? He ends up authorizing Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Then there's Herod listed there. He's Rome's puppet king over the Jews who ends up having John himself imprisoned and beheaded. Uh, the high priests Annas and Caiaphas are also uh, mentioned, who are instrumental in trying to stamp out Jesus and his followers. So what's Luke trying to tell us by giving us these names and their positions? John the Baptist and the movement that is about to launch through him is going to clash with the political and religious regimes of this world. In other words, the kingdom of God is going to, it's going to collide with the kingdoms of the world. And Luke goes on and he quotes the prophet Isaiah to show us that John is a prophet. He's a voice, he says, crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, how does John do that? How does he prepare the way of the Lord? He proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what's that all about? Remember, God's people at this time, the Israelites, they have been oppressed, overtaxed, and persecuted by different world powers for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And while there had been many promises about Yahweh returning to rule over his people and to restore them, by all appearances, that project seemed incomplete. 
And the result is that many of God's people have wandered away from him. They have lost their faith in him. They have put their faith in other gods. They have blended in with the rest of the culture. So this wilderness weirdo, and he is weird, and we're going to talk more about that next week, he starts preaching and saying, it's time to turn your hearts back to the Lord our God because he is going to show up to gather his faithful ones. And so people who wanted to get their act together and realize that they had wandered from Yahweh, their God, they went out into the wilderness and they were baptized by John. So what's happening in all of this? What's happening is that God is once again speaking through a prophet, which he had not done for hundreds of years. And he is launching the completion of his Israel project of using this people to be a blessing to the world and to and to let the world know about the one true God. He's going to return. He is going to return in Jesus, of course, and he's going to redefine the true people of God, no longer based on ethnicity, but based on those who will follow Jesus, the Christ, as Lord. So God, we could say, is showing up to finish his project, his project of gathering to himself a faithful people that will carry out his mission in the world. And so that's a big picture project completion. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward a few centuries from this time, and we're going to look at Paul's little letter to the Philippians, this little snippet from his letter to the Philippians. Um, and we're going to see here another aspect of how God finishes his projects. And this one has some very helpful practical implications for us, I think. So Paul's writing, he's writing from a uh, prison, and uh, he is writing to a group of fairly new Christians in a place called Philippi. And he says this, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And he says this, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. So, church planter extraordinaire that Paul was, had founded this community of Jesus followers and sometime later found himself in jail again. And as you can see in other letters of Paul, he is deeply concerned for how the message of the gospel is affecting the communities that he has started. Now, apparently from this letter, we see the Philippians seem to be in pretty good shape, actually. Um, He says that they have been sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. So the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is alive and active in the community. People's lives are being changed. They're learning to love each other well. But they're not complete. They're not complete. So what Paul says next is this. He's confident that the God who began the work in their midst will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That is the return of Jesus to to judge and to redeem the world. Now, the interesting thing here, and it's easy to pass over this, is that Paul notes God is the acting subject in this process of completion and the Philippians as the object, as the recipients of God's work. This is not a small point. This is not a small point, and it raises a big question for us today. How do we become what God wants us to become? How do we get complete? Now, for our culture The answer is pretty easy and straightforward. You do everything you can to complete yourself. You're responsible, and if you mess it up, too bad. Because in our culture, being complete means being successful at your career, or having a beautiful body, or accumulating wealth or fame. 
And most of us have grown up being taught by our society that we need to find our identity, our sense of completion in those things. But here's the problem with that. If you try to complete yourself or find your identity in money or success or relationships, your identity will fall apart as soon as any of those things is jeopardized. But see, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you get your identity from the eternal God who loves you and died for you. And money or success or relationships, those things are still a part of your life, but they're no longer your source of identity. They aren't what makes you complete because you get that from Jesus. Now, back to our question. How does that completeness happen? How does he complete us? How do we become what God intends us to become? In the next chapter, which you can't see in your reading today, Paul gives a very profound answer to this question. He's moving on in his letter and he's talking to the Philippians and he says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, you're responsible to work on what you are becoming in Jesus and you should do that with reverence and awe. That's what fear and trembling means. It doesn't mean cowering and hiding. But then he goes on, now listen, so it sounds like he says the responsibility is yours. But now listen to what he says next. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's on you. God's doing the work. Which is it? You see, in the Christian tradition, there's no separating those two things. God's grace at work in us. And God's expectation of us to cooperate with his grace that is at work in us. You see, it's God who enables our spiritual growth. It's God who makes us able to work on our prayer lives, our attitudes toward other people, our our willingness to set ourselves aside and to serve others. All of that is a work of grace. It's the power and the goodness of God active in our hearts. Now, here's the tricky thing. Here's the hang up for us because we are experts at finding ways around that grace that would otherwise be at work in us, completing us. We say our prayers after an indulgent evening, lest we be tempted to pray for self-control. Or we tell ourselves that it couldn't possibly be God's grace that's telling us to give up a personal vice or to engage in a fast for a few days. Couldn't possibly be God's grace doing that. C.S. Lewis was writing about this. He was writing about prayer and he said this, I come into the presence of God with a great fear lest anything should happen to me within that presence which will prove too intolerably inconvenient when I have come out again into my ordinary life. I don't want to be carried away into any resolution which I shall afterwards regret. For I know I shall be feeling quite different after breakfast. There's a story about um, an Irish woman who had just left the confessional at her parish and she runs into her arch nemesis from her village. And the woman, of course, as usual, rattles off some insults at her. And she replies... Isn't it a shame for ye to be talking to me like that, ye coward, and me in a state of grace the way I can't answer ye? But you wait. I won't be in a state of grace long. (laughs) You see, God's grace is always working on us, drawing us deeper into life with him, rooting out 
the rebellion that is in our hearts. But like the Irish woman, we are all too eager to remove ourselves from the work of grace. Why do we do that? Because we convince ourselves that we know better. We convince ourselves that there are better things for us than becoming who God truly intends us to become. And yet, and yet, all of our resistance, all of our sins and our shortcomings are no match for the mighty God who is committed to completing us. And do you know why you can be confident of that? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where his grace overcomes our resistance. That is where his mercy wipes away our sin. And it's the love we see on the cross that gives him the right over every area of our lives. Let me tell you just a quick story about how grace intruded into my life. One of the ways recently, I'm going to get vulnerable with you here for a second. Okay, I'm all about vulnerability. A friend introduced me to the Enneagram, which is basically a kind of personality test sort of thing that has roots in ancient Christianity. And I'm reading through this book. It's written by an Episcopal priest who's kind of an expert on this stuff. And I'm reading through the nine different types of personalities. And the author had these lists of like traits, you know, that would help you figure out which one you are. And I'm reading through them all. And I'm like 10, 9, 3, 7. I don't think I'm any of these. And then finally, I get to this number two type. And it's called that personality type is called the helper. Some of you already know that you're in this category. And I start reading the list. Little did I know God's grace was going to be invading my life in this uh, moment of reading. But I read things, I uh, began to read the list that said things like, I am a great listener and I remember the stories that make up people's lives. And I thought, okay, I think that's kind of me. Then it said, um, I am anxious to overcome misunderstandings in a relationship. Oh yeah, I said, that's me. That That's me. God can't leave anything bubbling under the surface. Got to take care of it. Then I get deeper into the list and it becomes more difficult to read. It seems like people who love me should already know what I need. Hmm. I need to be acknowledged and appreciated for my contributions. Ouch! So painfully true. Ah, and then I keep going. I care a great deal about what people think of me. (sighs) Uh, Lots of people ask me for help and it makes me feel valuable. Yeah, that's me. I worry a lot about being forgiven when I make mistakes. Oh, yeah. And so as I get deeper and deeper into this list, it's more and more painful, right? Because I'm just seeing and learning things about myself that I wasn't even aware of. But I started realizing maybe, and I think you might have this experience too if you if you discover what personality type you are, you start realizing maybe I don't always have the best pure of intentions, Maybe there are more selfish inclinations under the surface than I'm aware of. Maybe I do depend a little too much on others for a sense of identity and completion. Maybe I am a little more broken than I thought. But I also realized that this discovery was grace breaking into my life, challenging me to get out of the way So that it could do its work. It was the voice of the Lord saying, Cameron, you need to know this stuff about yourself because these are blind spots and you need to see your blind spots so that I can continue to carry out the work that I have begun in you. It's a work of grace, a work of grace. And I thank God for it as painful as it was. I am confident of this. 
that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, as we work our way deeper into Advent, as we watch candles lit another one every week and work our way deeper into Advent and we contemplate the great and terrible coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures remind us that we are to be devoted to our growth in him. We do need to ask the questions about how to have more consistent prayer lives, how to offer our labors to the Lord, how to, as St. Paul says, put to death what is earthly in us. But we also must look long and hard upon the cross of Calvary and see a God who is committed to finishing his projects, to completing the work he has begun in us as individuals and as a church community. Because ultimately, God is the hero of this story. It is he who works in us, enabling us toward our completion. So be alert this Advent. Make a practice of asking yourself, where has God's grace been at work in my life? And where have I been resisting it? And resolve to give yourself over to it. To end with the words of St. Paul to the Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best. So that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are all full, fully aware that we are incomplete projects. But in your scriptures, we read what, what gives us hope that you will complete what you have begun in us, in our individual lives, in our community here at Good Shepherd, and what you have begun in the world. So we put our hope in you, and we ask you to reveal to us, Lord, in the days to come, the ways that your grace has been trying to speak to us, been trying to nudge us, trying to intrude into our lives in the best way for us. And we ask you to give us the strength to surrender to that grace so that we may be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.